Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. This week I'm going to have a conversation about the novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. And I'll be joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, hello. Hello, Hi, Frank. Frank. How are you both today? A little tear sodden. Tear sodden? Well, Ildi, why are you tear sodden? Is it from reading our novel of Mice and Men? Oh, yes. Poor Lenny. Before we get into what makes you so sad about this novel, let me read a quick introduction. Set among the migrant farms of California during the Depression, of Mice and Men is the story of men, and in particular two men, the lifelong friends Lenny and George. Lenny is a gentle giant with a minor mental disability and a childlike innocence. George is anything but innocent and only a giant in Lenny's eyes. How George and Lenny interact with each other, with the other workers on the farm, and with the woman that ultimately comes between them make up the story of our novel of Mice and Men. So, Ildi, tell me, was this the first time you read of Mice and Men? No, I read of Mice and Men either in my eighth grade or ninth grade year, and I had a really powerful reaction to it the first time I read it. I was so taken with it. I was probably a young preteen girl who just absolutely loved to cry at novels and movies, etc. And I was so taken with this novel that I shared this with my best friend. You've got to read this. She ended up making fun of one of the main characters. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I was so protective of this novel that I loved that I took personal offense. And now, anytime I hear any kind of joke in reference to this novel, I have this upsurge of just anger. (laughs) Well, before I get to Scott, what was it like reading it for the second time? I had the same reaction. (laughs) Characters are certainly easy to get attached to. Scott, tell me about the first time you read the novel. I believe the first time was in high school. I've read it once or twice since then as well, up until this most recent time. I've loved it every time. It is sad. I always end up saying, poor Lenny. But it's a fantastic novel. It's not just Lenny. It's a very sad novel on many different levels for all the characters. Very true. All right, Scott, start us off. How does the novel of Mice and Men begin? Our novel begins with the two main characters, George Milton and Lenny Small, walking down a path through some woods near a river, heading towards the ranch where they're expected to begin working. Right, they're complaining that the bus driver dropped them off too far away from the farm. Yeah, he said, just a little bit over there. A few hours later, they still haven't gotten there. What do we quickly learn about our two main characters, George and Lenny? Well, we learn that George seems to be the leader and Lenny the follower. And whereas Lenny is really big, he seems to have a mental disability. He has a mentality of a six or seven-year-old, I'd think. That's right. Through the novel, that's about his intelligence level, and it really never changes. He's definitely before the age of reason. He knows things can be bad that you do but doesn't quite understand the consequences for his actions. And Scott, tell me a little bit more about George Milton. George is basically the big brother that Lenny never had, and they've been tagging along since they're little kids. It turns out that Lenny's Aunt Clara, who obviously had custody of Lenny, entrusted Lenny to George. Just before she passed away, knowing that Lenny had no one else in the world to look out for him. Right, and she made it clear that Lenny should mind George in whatever he does. And we quickly come to understand that George and Lenny have been together, as we said, for quite a few years now. And they go from farm to farm and from town to town. And they'll work for a while. They make what they call a stake. And then they basically move on. But the last time they moved on, it's because they got in some trouble. What was that trouble up in weed? Well, Lenny likes to pet mice, pet rabbits, anything that's soft, anything of bright colors. And it happens that a girl in the town of Weed is wearing a bright red dress. And so he starts to touch the dress. And then she panics, and that makes Lenny very confused. And so he grabs the dress. 
And at that point, they ended up forming a lynching mob in the town of Weed, and the two of them hide with their heads sticking out of the ditch until it's nightfall and they skedaddle. And now that George and Lenny are on the run from the town of Weed and headed towards a new farm to work on, George gives Lenny some very specific instructions about staying out of trouble this time. If something goes wrong, then Lenny has to come back to this pond where they're pausing to take a short break on their way to the ranch, and he's going to hide in the bushes until George can get to him at nightfall. That's right, but there's one more scene at the pond between Lenny and George before they head to the farm, and it involves a small little mouse. Well, Lenny seems to have been carrying a little mouse in his pocket. A dead mouse. A dead mouse, and George thinks this probably a little unhealthy, and so he wants Lenny to get rid of the mouse. And Lenny just doesn't understand. He's like, well, it's not doing any harm. I'm not doing anything. As we're walking, I'm just petting it with my thumb. Right. This goes back to this fascination he has with soft, furry things. Right. So George makes him throw it across the pond. And he does, reluctantly. And then he asks Lenny to go get some firewood for kindling to make a fire because he has a couple cans of beans to eat for dinner. So Lenny goes trotting off to get some firewood. Sure enough, where does he go in the direction of the little mouse? And as soon as he comes back, where's the firewood? I forgot the firewood, but I remembered my mouse. And so George gets a little angry and makes him throw the mouse again. All right. Well, Scott, not being able to retrieve his mouse kind of upsets Lenny, but George has a tried-and-true method of calming Lenny down. Well, they kind of have this utopian scheme that someday they'll get their stake together big enough that they can buy a small piece of property with a few acres, with a small house, and they'll live off the fat of the land, as they always say. This is their great American dream. Right. And Lenny's going to get to tend the rabbits. Lenny's obsessed with tending the rabbits. Well, Ildi, let's get George and Lenny to this ranch. Just in time to have missed the workers going out into the field. (laughs) And the boss is a little ticked off. Yeah, he expected them in the morning so that they could work a full day for their meal. Right. And so George explains that the bus driver left them far too far away and that they had to walk the whole distance. Lenny's being very, very quiet, but his size impresses this farm boss. Right, and he wants him to speak, and George says, well, he doesn't speak much, but you give him a bale of barley to buck, and he's going to outshine any of your hardest workers. Well, Scott, George and Lenny aren't at the ranch long before they meet Curly and Candy. But first, Candy. Well, Candy's one of the oldest farmhands on the ranch, and he lost his hand some time back in one of the machines. They just keep him around out of pity and guilt. One of the most striking things about Candy isn't necessarily Candy, but that he's got this mangy, stinky, old, decrepit, half-blind dog that is always trailing behind him or laying somewhere near him. That's right. When we first meet Candy, we also meet his dog. And everywhere Candy goes, this dog is also with him. Right. But the dog's not a favorite with the other ranch hands. Right. Some of the other ranch workers are really upset because wherever Candy is, so is his dog. And he stinks up the place. Nasty dog. It's tough sleeping in that bunkhouse with a smelly old dog. Right. And Ildi, right after we meet Candy and his old dog, we meet another one of the workers, Curly. Well, he's not really one of the workers. He's the boss's son, isn't he? Right. Curly seems to have a giant chip on his shoulder. And that's probably because he's small in stature. It gives him a bit of a complex, and he took up boxing to compensate for it, and he did pretty well. And now he makes a point to challenge every big guy he comes across on the ranch. Yeah, but Scott, the most interesting fact we learn about Curly is not that he was a Golden Gloves champ. He's been recently married. That's right, to the only woman on the ranch. And what's her name? She is simply known as 
Curly's wife. Well, that's right. Scott Steinbeck never gives her a name, but Ildi, a lot of the ranch hands have given her some names, haven't they? Poison, jailbait, rat trap, and a certain female dog. Not to mention just the old, usual tart and tramp words. Absolutely. There's a great quote from Steinbeck right after they first meet Curly's wife, and she's looking for Curly, and it's kind of flirtatious, and George says, geez, what a tramp. So that's what Curly picks for a wife. Lenny responds, she's purdy. And right away, George lets us know that he's a little bit concerned about Lenny's response to this woman. That's right. He does not want Lenny anywhere near her. And really, it's not so much about Lenny. He recognizes this type of woman. That's right. They consider her to have the eye. Married two weeks only, and she's got the eye. We kind of get a sense of foreboding right away here. And Lenny responds, let's get out of here. It's mean here. Let's just leave right now. But they don't. They want to get that steak together so they can get their land. Well, Scott and Ildi, once we've met Candy and Curly, we now meet the leader of the ranch hands, the mule skinner, Slim. And I love the way Steinbeck writes about him. He moved with a majesty achieved only by royalty and master craftsmen. His authority was so great that his word was taken on any subject, be it politics or love. This was slim. He hears more than is said, and he sees beyond mere appearances. And automatically, when he sees Lenny and George, he looks kindly at the two of them. George and Slim hit it off real quickly. And George kind of insults himself and raises Lenny high up, and he says, I ain't nothing to scream about. But that big guy over there can put up more grain alone than most pears can. And Slim looks approvingly at George for having given this compliment. If Slim takes notice of a compliment, I think we can assume that they're pretty rare on the ranch. Right. All right, Scott, before we take our next break, there's one more character I would like to introduce. Tell me about Carlson, another ranch hand. A powerful, big-stomached man. As he walks into the bunkhouse, they all have some sort of obsession. He has an old Luger pistol, which he's somewhat obsessed with, keeping it clean. Yeah, but that's not really his obsession. As we mentioned before... Candy's old right. stinky dog. He's obsessed with getting rid of that big, stinky, mangy mutt of a dog. He just can't stand that this dog is stinking up the bunkhouse. So he comes up with all these excuses about why it would be more humane to get rid of the dog. He says, well, he's got no teeth. He's darn near blind. He can't eat. He feeds him milk. You know, he can't even chew anything else. And all he does is just sit there and stink. <laughs> It would be a kindness to get rid of him. What does Candy think about this from Carlson? It kind of brings him to tears just thinking about getting rid of his best friend. This dog's been with him since he was a pup, and he was a very good sheepdog. He was a champion sheepdog. That's right, and he's so proud of him that he wants to put off the idea. But there's been some new pups born on the ranch, and that's sort of the impetus for Carlson to say, hey, let's get rid of this old dog. You can have one of the new pups. That's right. Slim's dog, Lulu, has just had a litter of pups. He had a litter of nine pups, but there's only five left. Drowned the first four. Who drowned the first four? Slim did. Didn't think the dog could feed that many. Boy, that's real rough frontier justice on those dogs. It seems a big theme throughout the novel is that when something is useless or can no longer contribute. Or just a headache to everyone else. Right, that it's a kindness to dispose or get rid of or kill. We were talking about the old ranch hand Candy and his old dog. And then we mentioned Carlson, another ranch hand, who actually had a plan for this dog. Well, his plan is to get everyone on the bandwagon to pressure Candy so that he would let Carlson get rid of the dog. Clearly, they've been talking about this old stinky dog in this ranch house for quite a while. Yeah, and Carlson is getting tired of Candy's excuses and delay. And the convenient fact that Slim's dog Lulu has just had pups is going to give a little more weight to the argument. 
because Candy be able to have a new dog. Ildi, does Candy actually agree to let Carlson kill his dog? Well, it all comes down to Slim. They kind of look to Slim as their leader, obviously. And so when he finally speaks up, he says, Carlson's right, Candy. That dog ain't no good to himself. I wish somebody'd shoot me if I get old and a cripple. And because Slim's opinions were law, Candy has to acquiesce. Steinbeck describes the bunkhouse getting very quiet. It seems that Steinbeck likes to make things quiet in the novel when things are going to go bad. Steinbeck writes, The silence was in the room again. A shot sounded in the distance. The men looked quickly at the old man. Every head turned toward him. For a moment, he continued to stare at the ceiling. Then he rolled slowly over and faced the wall and lay silent. Then George shuffled the cards noisily and dealt them. But Lenny, all he can think about is puppy. That's right. Ever since the mention of Slim's dog having pups, all that Lenny can think about is getting one of those pups. Essentially, he's like a little child. George, can I have a puppy? George, can I, huh? A brown and white one, George, huh? And we know kids like that. And this leads to another nice moment with Slim. Slim says, sure, he can have one of my pups. Which makes Lenny's day. Month. But Slim tells him that, you know, they're still too young for you to handle and take away from the mother, but give it a couple of weeks and then you can have whichever puppy you want. But Ildi, all Lenny hears is, you can have a puppy. (laughs) That's right. And he immediately runs to the barn and starts messing around with these very, very newborn puppies. In fact, Lenny goes right out there and sure enough, he comes back in with a little bump in his coat. And George is on to him, of course. He makes him take him right back out. Lenny says, I'm not doing him any harm. And then they have to remind him that he needs his mother so that he can have milk and get food, etc. So. And Scott, now that Lenny's missing the puppies, he starts talking to George about the rabbits again. He's still fixated on something soft and furry. That's right. He's picturing how he's going to every day take care of the rabbits, take them out of the cage, and pet them and feed them and protect them. And Candy happens to overhear part of the story about how they're going to live off the fat of the land. And this is the first thing that perks Candy up since his dog's been killed. He's interested in George and Lenny's plan for this land. That's right. He knows he's kind of like the dog ready to be put to pasture. And so he looks at George and says, you know where there's a place that you could get land like this? And George says, yes. And Candy starts the wheels turning. He has $350 to put in. He makes an offer. He says, how about I go live with you? I can sweep, I can cook, I can tend chickens, even hoe in the garden a little bit. And in case I die, I'll leave it in my will that my shares go to you. So this sounds pretty good to George and Lenny. And right during this conversation, Curly, the boss's son, pops his head into the ranch house. What's he want? He's looking for his wife. It seems like he's always looking for his wife. Seems like they're always missing each other. Yeah, but Curly doesn't like it when he can't find his wife. He knows her well enough to suspect her. She likes to look for companionship. She doesn't like being cooked up in the house all day. Even she needs a A friend to talk with. Right. And really, though, everyone suspects that she's likely a terrible person. So far, everything has been innocent. But Scott, this time, Curly has cast his jealous eye on the wrong man. He thinks Slim has been fooling around with his wife. Yeah, and Slim, with his magnanimous presence, puts him in his place very quickly. And to follow that up, Carlson chimes in, you tried to throw a scare into Slim, and you couldn't make it stick. (laughs) And at this point, Curly's just looking to pick a fight with anyone, and he sees poor Lenny smiling as he thinks happy thoughts about his rabbits. And that's really all Curly needed, isn't it? That's it. And Curly starts beating up on Lenny. Lenny's just standing there, and Curly punches him square in the nose, and he's bleeding all over the place. And Lenny starts crying, George, what do I do? Make him stop, George. 
And finally, George says, get him, Lenny. That's right. George starts yelling at him, go for it, Lenny. Get go him, ahead. Lenny. That's Don't right. let him hit you. At this point, Slim is about to interfere and says he's going to take care of Curly himself. And George holds Slim back, says, wait, watch. And Curly's fist was swinging when Lenny reached for it. Read the exact quote. The next minute, Curly was flopping like a fish on the line, and his closed fist was lost in Lenny's big hand. George ran down the room. Let go of him, Lenny. Let go. But Lenny watched in terror the flopping little man whom he held. Finally, he does let go. By that time... Curly is just a withered white shell of a little man. That's right. Slim says to George, we've got to get him to a doctor. Looks to me like every bone in his hand is bust. That's right. Didn't even throw a punch, just held his hand. And crushed it. But immediately George is worried. He now knows we've caused trouble again. This can't be good for us. And who does he go to? He goes to Slim. What do we do? Is he going to get us canned? And Slim says, let me take care of this. Slim goes over to Curly. And he says, do you have senses enough in your head to listen? Curly nods his head. Well, then you listen, he says. I think you got your hand caught in a machine. And if you don't tell nobody what happened, we ain't going to. But you just tell and try to get this guy canned and we'll tell everybody. And then you will get the laugh. And because that's what Curly fears most is being laughed at, he agrees. And what's happening with Lenny at this moment? <laughs> Lenny's standing in the corner. George is consoling him. George is consoling him. We better get you washed up. And Lenny smiled with his bruised mouth. I didn't want no trouble. And immediately his mind turns to? <laughs> rabbits. He's always afraid if he does something bad enough that George won't let him tend the rabbits when they have their steak. And he asks, can I still tend the rabbits, George? And George says, sure, you ain't done nothing wrong. And Scott, at this point, even though we're close to the end of our novel, John Steinbeck introduces us to one final character, Crooks, the old Negro stable buck. Correct. Crooks lives out in the barn by himself, has a separate place away from everyone else because he's black. He happens to be crippled, much like Candy. And as a stable buck, he takes care of the horses, takes care of feeding them, saddling them, general maintenance in the barn. That's right. Let's be clear. He's not a slave. Right. And Crooks has become mutually soured to all the white guys of the ranch. And it comes to pass on a Saturday night when all the other ranch hands have gone to town that Lenny ends up in Crooks's room. Well, he was out in the barn visiting his pups and he saw Crooks's light on. And as a curious child would, he goes over and says, hey, I saw your light on. I was thinking maybe I could sit with you a while. And this is where we get Crooks' attitude. He doesn't want anyone coming into his room uninvited. He feels, hey, I'm not good enough to sleep with the white men in the bunkhouse, and they've given me this little room off the stable, but it is my room. And I have a prerogative in my room to decide who comes into my room. Right, and Lenny says, well, why aren't you wanted in the bunkhouse? He doesn't understand. And what's Crooks' response, Scott? Because I'm black. They play cards in there, but I can't play because I'm black. They say I stink. Well, I tell you, you all stink to me. They think it's great to play horseshoes outside with crooks, but they would never let him inside the bunkhouse to play cards with them. But in Lenny, Crooks does see a fellow lost soul and so invites him into his room. Crooks can't help but to want his company as seems to be the desire of every character in the novel, to want company. And so he asks Lenny in and starts to unload on him, really. Yeah, but now Crooks is going to get more joy than he expected. Candy now comes calling. Yeah, Candy can't get the idea of the rabbits and the fat of the land out of his mind either, and he's looking for Lenny to ask him a couple more questions. He's been doing some figuring about those rabbits, and he's been thinking, well, maybe we could even make money on those rabbits. 
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. So now Lenny and Candy start talking about the land and the rabbits, and Crooks gets interested in this. It's almost like the island of misfit toys. It's all these guys who, in some way or another, are crippled. They have no one to talk to. They have no companions. And so they seek each other's company. They seek each other's dream, even. Exactly. And so Crooks, because he's gotten out of himself, he wants in on this dream, too. Hey, I could do something. I could just sleep in the corner somewhere, you know, as long as I could have my own place. Just give me a piece of this dream. Right. And amazingly, for a guy who's never had any company in his bunk room, he's about to get another visitor. The tramp. What does she want? Looking for Curly. She's really just looking for company. Really? Yeah. She says to the men after they say, well, you shouldn't be here. She says, well, I ain't giving you no trouble. Think I don't like to talk to somebody ever? Think I like to stick in that house all the time? It's actually really sad at the end of this chapter. Curly's wife does finally leave, and Crook says to Candy and to Lenny, Maybe you guys better go. I ain't sure I want you in here no more. A colored man got to have some rights, even if he don't like them. And Crooks calls to Candy when they're leaving and says, Candy, remember what I said about hoeing and doing odd jobs? And Candy says, yes, I remember. And Crooks says, well, just forget it. But Scott, this scene really only ends the dream for Crooks. George, Candy, and Lenny still have their dream. That's right. And so in the next chapter, Steinbeck moves us to the Sunday afternoon. They're all sitting around pitching horseshoes and telling stories. Lenny's in the barn, though, by himself. Yeah, Lenny doesn't fit in with the rest of the guys, but he has his puppies he can go play with. But unfortunately, Uh Steinbeck writes, Lenny sat in the hay and looked at a little dead puppy that lay in front of him. He didn't mean to. He's just so big, so strong, doesn't know his own strength. Right. Lenny can't understand what happened. He's talking softly to the puppy. He says, why do you got to be killed? You ain't so little as mice. He's worried that if he's caught killing yet another small animal, then that dream will be taken away. Right. And it's at this moment that Curly's wife comes into the barn. And they describe Curly's wife as coming around very quietly. And remember, quiet is bad in Steinbeck novels. And she's wearing a bright cotton dress and shoes with red ostrich feathers on them and they describe her hair as being sausage curls and you think all things Lenny's going to want to touch she's not as small and weak as a little puppy and she invites his touch she certainly does she wants to talk to someone so badly she convinces Lenny that it's okay to talk to her because he doesn't want to talk to her George told him not to talk to her She finally convinces him by figuring out that he likes soft things. And she says, well, I brush my hair all the time, and other people's hair is coarse, like Curly's hair is very coarse, but mine, because I brush it so much, is very soft. And she lets Lenny touch her hair. And he pets it and thinks, oh, this is very soft. So he starts pawing at her head. And she's trying to pull away, and he's holding tighter. Well, as soon as Lenny fears anything... He just clamps down. Just like he did on Curly's hand. And the girls dress in weed. And she starts to shriek. 
And this scares Lenny. Please don't do that. George will get mad. Right. George will get mad. And so what does he do? He takes his other hand and puts it over her mouth and nose. His hands are very large. All right, Scott. I think we all know. And at this point, he shakes her a bit too hard, and then she's still. What's happened? Her neck broke. And now he's in full panic. He tries to cover her up a bit with the hay, but that's not going to work. No, but he does remember one thing. He remembers what George told him to do if he ever did a bad thing, and he knows he's in trouble. He's got to go to that pond. And that's all Lenny now can think about. And before he goes, he picks up the dead puppy because he figures the scene looks bad enough as it is. And, well, maybe if I throw the puppy away, George won't notice that one. And, Ildi, just as you've said before, John Steinbeck ominously writes, The quiet of the afternoon was on the ranch. It's way too quiet, isn't it? He even writes, Even the voices of the men in the game seem to grow more quiet. All right, Scott, how does this end? Well... Candy, still thinking about the fat of the land and this ranch they're going to get in another month or two, comes wandering into the barn to bounce more ideas off of Lenny and what they can do with these rabbits. And he doesn't find Lenny, but he does find Curly's wife. Candy has a hunch as to what happened. He has more than a hunch. He knows exactly what happened. Now, of course, Curly immediately goes crazy. Curly knows exactly who did it. The guy who busted my hand. He's going to get him. I'm going for my shotgun and I'm going to kill him myself. Essentially, all the men go for their guns. Right. But Carlson quickly comes back from the bunkhouse and says, my Luger's missing, my gun's gone. So they all assume that Lenny has taken the gun because of what he's done. But even without Carlson's gun, they've got a lynching party ready. They're going to go find Lenny, and they're going to take care of him. That's right. And they ask George which way he thinks Lenny might have gone. And of course, George tries to put him off the scent by saying, well, we came from the north, so he probably went south. Right. In reality, he's thinking of the pond himself. Of course, he hopes that Lenny remembered the plan and has gone back to that pond. And as soon as George can, that's where he heads. And Lenny has already been there. Scott, do you want to describe the last scene once George has found Lenny? Well, George does find Lenny hiding out at the pond in the bushes. At least Lenny did that right. That's right. And Lenny goes right back to his habits. He tries to mimic what he thinks he should be doing. We're down to the last few pages of the book, and it really is a sad couple pages to read. George is kind of reflecting on life and the situation he is in, taking care of Lenny all the time and never able to be stationary in life. And George says, guys like us got no family. They make a little stake and then they blow it in. They ain't got nobody in the world that gives a hoot and heck about them. But not us, Lenny cried happily. Tell about us. George was quiet for a moment. But not us, he said. Because? Because I got you and I got you. We got each other. That gives a hoot and heck about us, Lenny cried in triumph. And George tells Lenny to take his hat off and George takes his own hat off. And you have a sense that they're almost at a funeral now. And George sits quietly and carefully behind Lenny. Yeah. And in the background, you can hear the lynching mob getting closer and closer. George keeps telling Lenny to think about those rabbits. Yes, you're going to get those rabbits. Think about the fat of the land. George, can we have a cow? Absolutely. You can have anything you want, Lenny. Are you mad at me? No. And while they're having this conversation, Steinbeck writes, George reached into his side pocket and brought out Carlson's Luger. He snapped off the safety, and the hand and the gun lay on the ground behind Lenny's back. He looked at the back of Lenny's head, and now they continue to hear the sounds of the lynch party coming. And George looks down at the gun again. There were crashing footsteps in the brush now. George turned and looked toward them. And at just this moment, George really gives a very nice eulogy to Lenny. He says, you and me, everybody going to be nice to you. Ain't going to be no more trouble. Lenny says, I thought you was mad at me. And George says, no, Lenny, I ain't mad, and I never been mad. 
and I ain't now. That's a thing I want you to know. And Steinbeck continues. Lenny begged, let's do it now. Let's get that place now. Sure, right now. And Steinbeck continues. And George raised a gun and steadied it, and he brought the muzzle of it close to the back of Lenny's head. The hand shook violently, but his face set and his hand steadied. He pulled the trigger. The crash of the shot rolled up the hills and rolled down again. Lenny jarred and then settled slowly forward to the sand, and he lay without quivering. Are you tear-sodden again, Ildi? Can't help it. <laughs> this is a tough scene. It's a very, very tough scene. You're reminded of when Candy was talking about when Carlson shot his dog, and he looked at George and said, I wish I had done it myself. That's what was going through George's head. He didn't want anyone else to kill Lenny. And he wanted it to be as peaceful as possible for Lenny, and he knew that there would be a world of pain and torture if he let Curly have his way. And once the rest of the men arrive at this scene, George quickly tells them another story. Yeah, he had your gun. And you got it away from him, and you took it and you killed him? Yeah, that's how. And George's voice was almost a whisper. He just kept looking at his right hand that had held the gun. But Ildi and Scott, Slim is not fooled by this story. Slim knows what happened. He says to George, Never you mind. A guy got to sometimes. Come on, George. Me and you'll go in and get a drink. George says, yeah, a drink. Slim says, you had a George. I swear you had a. And that's how our novel of Mice and Men ends. Now you see why I get all tear-sodden. Ildi, I do, and I totally understand that this was a hard, sorrowful story to read and finish. I'm glad we read it, but it was tough to finish. All right, and I think that's where we'll end our conversation about the novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Now, of course, even in a novel this short, we can't discuss every character or get to every moment. So if you have a favorite passage you want to read or character you want to mention, now's your chance. Ildi, do you have something? Yeah, in the scene where George is opening up to Slim, George explains a little bit more of the relationship between he and Lenny. It goes back to the past when they were younger. George says he used to play games on him because he was too dumb to take care of himself. And he never got mad about it either. He says, I've beat the heck out of him, and he could have bust every bone in my body just with his hands, but he never lifted a finger against me. And George's voice was taking on the tone of a confession. Tell you what made me stop that. One day, a bunch of guys was standing around up on the Sacramento River. I was feeling pretty smart. I turned to Lenny and says, jump in. And he jumped. Couldn't swim a stroke. He darn near drowned before we could get him. And he was so nice to me for pulling him out. Clean forgot I had told him to jump in. Well, I didn't do anything like that anymore. You know, I remember that moment. That was a good moment. The quote that I wanted to read is from Crooks, the old Negro stable buck. And he's talking about being lonely and how everybody needs somebody to talk to. A guy sits alone out here at night, maybe reading books or thinking or stuff like that. Sometimes he gets thinking. And he got nothing to tell him what's so and what ain't so. Maybe if he sees something, he don't know whether it's right or not. He can't turn to some other guy and ask if he sees it too. He can't tell. He's got nothing to measure by. I seen things out here. I wasn't drunk. I don't know if I was asleep. If some guy was with me, he could tell me if I was asleep, and then it would be all right. But I just don't know. Yeah, that just epitomizes how everyone in this novel is lonely at heart. It's the human need for communication, for companionship. companionship. I mean, it's one of our basic necessities. All of the people in this novel are just looking for someone to talk to, someone to share some moments with. And it seems that Lenny is oftentimes the one to whom they go to, because regardless of whether he's hearing what they're saying, 
He's listening. Scott, do you have a moment? One of the things I really enjoyed as one of the side themes of the novel is George and Slim really seem to take to one another right away. Slim is heads and shoulders above everyone on the ranch as far as respect and competence. George seems to right away be the only possible equal to Slim. And there's no sense of competition between them. They immediately are open with one another. Well, why do you think that is, Scott? There's a line in the novel, they're talking about Slim, and they say, Slim is a real mule skinner. He takes care of his team. And you guess you could think of Lenny as George's mule. So it's a respect that Slim feels for George in the way George is taking care of Lenny. It's maybe more simple than that, just he is someone who seems competent, is able to think ahead rather than just about the moment. And Slim hasn't really run into very many competent men. Not many at all. I like to think of him as the iconic, laconic cowboy. (laughs) And I think it's with Slim understanding and appreciating the relationship that George and Lenny had that will end today's conversation about the novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Ildi, Scott, I want to thank you both for coming in and talking to me about a good but tough novel to read. Absolutely. Thanks. It's been a joy and a sorrow. You're right. It has been both. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation about our novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, hello. Hi, Frank. Ted, during our preliminary discussions, you kept saying of Mice and Men, the play, of Mice and Men, the novella, the play, the novella. Which one is it? Both. Well, that makes it clear. Always <laughs> glad to help. What you had here was John Steinbeck was interested in writing this as a play. What he did was he worked out each section of it so it would be in one area, inside a house, inside the barn, and so forth. Then he wrote the novella first to get all the structure, to get the dialogue, to get the characters, immediately went to the play, and both were released in 1937. Well, now, was that unusual for the time, or does that just sound unusual to me for today? Today, what is common is to have a screenplay and from that write a novel. It's called a novelization. I've never heard of it back then. Well, what kind of success did this have? First, tell me about the play. Was that successful? play was extremely successful and still is produced. And how about the novella? Amazingly, this was a major bestseller before it was published with a man who didn't have a reputation to warrant that. How can it be successful before it was published? It was picked up by Book of the Month Club, and before it was published, 117,000 copies had been ordered. Just a phenomenal number. And I cannot find anything to warrant it other than my guess is the publisher sent out a lot of what are called galley proofs so that hand sellers, booksellers who were going to be promoting it, perhaps newspapers, perhaps radio, would be talking about it. I understand this novel is interpreted differently now than when it was when it first came out. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yes, we're reading it with contemporary eyes, contemporary thoughts. This was a time of the Depression. The year that Steinbeck was writing it, 1937, 21% of the able-bodied Americans trying to find work could not. Men would go anywhere, left families, left loved ones, to try and find any work they could get. They'd be handed chits. They would take it, for example, to a farmer in the Salinas Valley where Steinbeck was living and have a job for a short period of time. The farmers would give them enough to survive. There were no benefits. Everyone was intensely lonely. Everyone knew at some point they would die alone. So unlike our team of Lenny and George, most of these men were solo on their own? Lenny and George were unusual for the day. They had found a way to have companionship, to get by, to move towards a dream. And it doesn't matter that it ended so tragically. So when Steinbeck gives us those touching moments between Candy and his old stinky dog, He's portraying a more realistic relationship for that time, a man and his pet. He's actually portraying a relationship of desperation. 
The man is living alone, he has nothing, and at least the dog is with him. In another circumstance, he might have put down the dog as being too old and too well to go on. We see a similar relationship with Crooks. Crooks is the old black stable hand. Yes, he's also extremely intelligent, isolated from the others by his race, reads all the time, but books don't counter loneliness, and he still is willing to reach out and accept the friendship or the attempts at friendship in his desperation. Yeah, there's not a single character in this novel that's not lonely. Even Curly's wife, who's never named, is lonely. Which is why the Salinas Valley farmers hated Steinbeck for many years, because that was the reality that they put these migrants into. They isolated these people. They did not let them have relationships. They just forced them to go from place to place to place until they died. Well, and Ted, that's why Lenny's death at the end of the novel has such an impact on us. We're sad for Lenny, but we're even sadder for George. He now joins that long line of lonely workers. Yes, and Steinbeck later wrote about this and, in a sense, also wrote about his own interest in conveying the emotions. He said, We are lonesome animals. We spend all our life trying to be less lonesome. One of our ancient methods is to tell a story begging the listener to say and to feel, yes, that's the way it is, or at least that's the way I feel it. You're not as alone as you thought. Well, I got to tell you, John Steinbeck made me feel it in this novel. All right, Ted, we can't end our end notes on John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men without talking about the title. John Steinbeck quotes the Scottish poet Robert Burns. Well, he was a British literature scholar in college. And there's a poem that Robert Burns wrote called To a Mouse Turning Her Up in Her Nest with a Plow. And in the passage, and I'll just read the two lines that matter, the best laid schemes of mice and men often go astray. And I'll tell you, in the novel of Mice and Men, the dreams of Curly's wife, Lenny and George, Crooks, Candy, even the little mouse in Lenny's pocket, certainly every one of them went astray. Yes. Ted, for that and everything else you brought us today, thank you very much. You're welcome. That ends our conversation today on the novel Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. I also want to thank my Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich, for coming in and having this conversation today. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.